0: Please turn to Matthew chapter 13, verse 24. Matthew chapter 13, verse 24 through 43. This is, as you probably know if you've been at Harvest, a continuation of our Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ series. A chronological walk through the earthly life and ministry of our Lord Jesus using all four Gospels. Um, The text we're looking at today uh, is a very important chapter in the Gospel of Matthew. I mean, it's a very important chapter in Scripture's period, but it's also very vital to Matthew's message as he's giving it in his gospel. Now, first of all, the first reason it's very important is it contains some very important truths regarding the kingdom of God that Matthew wanted his readers to understand. And you have to remember, Matthew was writing primarily to a Jewish audience, and he wants. Now, there were Gentiles that that were receiving this gospel as well, but he wanted uh, those Jewish readers in particular to understand some things about the kingdom of God. It was a misunderstanding about the kingdom of God that led many astray. And so Matthew gives us this very, very important chapter which has eight parables in it about the kingdom of God. Now, the second reason that this is an important chapter, it represents a shift in Jesus' ministry I guess you could call it his ministry strategy, if you will. As I mentioned last week, from this point forward, Jesus begins to preach and teach more in parables. And as we discovered last week, the very nature of parables is that they clarify and reveal the truths of the kingdom to those who have ears to hear. But at the same time, to those who do not have ears to hear, they obscure and conceal the kingdom. They are therefore instruments of grace and instruments of judgment. And the first parable in the chapter of chapter 13, the one we looked at last week, deals with that very topic, hearing. Do you hear the kingdom message? And there were four types of soils mentioned in the text that represents four different types of hearts. And all men fall into one of these four categories. There were hard hearts that reject the gospel. There were shallow hearts that embrace some emotional experience of the gospel. But when persecution and hardship come, it it withers up. There were divided hearts that proclaimed to love God, but still love the world. Love money and, and the cares of the world, they end up working like weeds and choking out and making the, the word unfruitful. And finally, there were receptive hearts, the fourth type of soil, out of which God produces a, the peaceful fruit of righteousness in, in supernatural measure, as we read at the end of that, that um, parable. So, the first parable was all about hearing the word. What type of heart do we have when we hear the word? And I mentioned also last week. That during the different phases of our sanctification, perhaps there are pockets of our heart that still have different patches of those different soils. And so we should daily be examining our heart to see if it's hard, if it's shallow, if it's divided, or if it's receptive. Now, all men are responsible for how they hear the gospel message, how they hear the kingdom message. So after looking at that first parable in chapter 13, I now want us to examine this chapter a little bit closer... Um, So go ahead and stand if you would as we get ready to read verse 24. I'll tell you what we're going to do today. I'm going to read this next parable and then I'm going to jump forward in the text to read the explanation of the parable. So we're going to read verses 24 uh, through 30 and then we're going to jump forward and read verses 36 through 43. So we're going to look at the next parable, we're going to look at Jesus' explanation of the parable and we'll come back to the other content later as we go through Matthew 13. So Matthew 13, beginning in verse 24, this is the word of the Lord. says this, He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat, and they went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. Now let's jump down to verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Heavenly Father, that is our prayer this morning, that we would have ears to hear. Give us ears to hear your word this morning. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see what Jesus is teaching about the kingdom. Not only today, but in the weeks to come as we look at this 13th chapter of Matthew. We thank you that you have not remained silent. You have not left your kingdom to be something we have to figure out. But you have clearly given us your word. And for those with ears to hear and eyes to see, it's right here. So help us to see rightly, to hear rightly, grant me a mouth to speak rightly. We ask in Jesus name. Amen. Please be seated. How many in here have been to Disney World? The Magic Kingdom, right? Totally different kingdom than the one we're talking about this morning, but the the Magic Kingdom now how many of you guys know about the secret of the magic kingdom that there's a complete underground Disney World? Did y'all know that? How many of y'all know that there's a there's a city almost underneath Disney World? Some of you some of you knew that, all right? There is. That's the secret to how the magic kingdom, how Disney World functions. Without what's underneath, it doesn't it doesn't work. Underneath Disney World and the story goes that that Walt Disney, after he built Disneyland out in California, he, he built Disneyland first, and he was frustrated one day when he saw one of the characters that was supposed to be in Frontierland walking through the, the Tomorrowland, or whatever it is, in character. And he said, that just, that's just not right. You can't have a cowboy walking through the space area. And so he was frustrated, and so he, when he built Disney World, he wanted to make it where the magic could be kept so that the, the illusion of what's going on isn't blown by some guy walking into the wrong time period. So he created Underground Disney, and they, they actually have a name for it. But there's, this, there's actually two more stories underneath Disney World. So Disney World was built as the third story of pretty much a massive construction, a massive building. There are two stories underneath. The ground was brought up to that third story with a slight incline. That's why there's a, a little hill up to the up to the castle there. But everything else underneath is this underground Disney. And down there underneath there are, um, from what I read this weekend, there's a cafeteria. There are offices. There is uh, a hairdresser. Lots of hairdressers. There are tunnels and golf carts that drive down the tunnels. There are 185 Mickey outfits down there. Okay? So there's always going to be a Mickey everywhere. Um, there are little secret ways to come out from under the tunnels to pop into the park. Um, there Every day they do, in Underground Disney, 285,000 pounds of laundry is washed every day in Underground Disney. So it's quite, a, quite an elaborate thing. I've never seen it or even, they actually don't even let you take very many pictures down there. They do tours of it and everything, but they want to keep what's going on down there fairly secret. Now, just as what makes Disney World work is hidden ...to most of the world. It's hidden to those who don't have eyes to see it. Some of you in here are aware of it. Some of you were not. Most of us in here have never seen it. And so it's hidden. And it makes the magic kingdom actually work right. The underground kingdom makes it work. It was a mystery. It is a mystery to most of us in here. So just as underground Disney is a mystery as to how the magic kingdom works... ...so too, the kingdom of God and the way the kingdom of God operates... ...and comes into the world is a mystery to many of those that Jesus is speaking to in today's text. It was a mystery to them. They weren't getting it. And quite frankly, it remains a mystery to many people today. Of course, to unbelievers, but even in the church, there's a lot of confusion about the kingdom of God. And so, what I want to do is walk through Matthew 13 and examine the kingdom of God over the next few weeks. I want Matthew 13 to be like a tour of underground Disney, it's our tour of the secrets and the mysteries of the kingdom. It's not hidden. It's right here in Matthew 13. But it takes some, some care and some discernment to, to look at this passage of Scripture carefully. And I'll be honest with you, I've struggled this week with this text, even how to preach it, because it's got, there is so much there. The whole chapter is, is very challenging to lay out in a way to preach. So uh, as we come to today's text... I want us to be aware that the Jews to whom Jesus was speaking here as he's preaching, as he's giving these, these parables, they were expecting the Messiah. They were expecting the kingdom of God to come. The mystery isn't that they weren't expecting those things. They were expecting those things. The mystery wasn't that the Messiah and his kingdom were coming. No, it turns out that the mystery was the timing, the manner, and the means by which the kingdom was coming. That's what the mystery was. That's what so many in Jesus' day were missing. You see, the Jews of Jesus' day expected an immediate, glorious deliverance from all their troubles and their difficulties, especially a political and military deliverance from Rome. That was the kind of kingdom that they were looking for. They were expecting the the Messiah to come and and to be a conqueror with a legion of mighty men. Yet Jesus was a meek carpenter with a band of misfits. They didn't understand the spiritual nature of the kingdom, nor did they understand, and this is the key thing in Matthew 13, the two-stage nature of the kingdom's arrival. In other words, they did not see the already, not yet nature of the kingdom. They didn't see the already nature of the kingdom as, as the kingdom was being established in the hearts of God's people. And therefore, they weren't able to understand that the not yet glory of the kingdom was still to come. They didn't understand that there was a greater enemy than Rome. The enemy was found in their own hearts, their own sinful hearts. And so, they were missing the kingdom. They saw the prophecies of the Old Testament, and they expected this massive, glorious arrival of the kingdom. And they rightly expected that. The Old Testament Teaches that the prophecies teach that that there is coming a glorious kingdom of God, and the New Testament teaches that. But the problem is, as they look at the Old Testament prophecies, they had no depth perception. They didn't see that in the New Testament that this coming of the kingdom actually is in two stages. Now, I I talked about this before, and it's kind of like when you're looking at a mountain range. Okay, from a distance, a mountain range. As you're driving toward a mountain range, and I remember driving in Colorado and. My freshman year of college and spring break, we were going to Colorado. And I remember driving, and, and you're on this very flat portion of road. I mean, the road's just as straight as can be, but you can see off in the distance this big purple-looking band, bumpy-looking band that goes across the, the skyline. And that's the mountains. Those are the Rocky Mountains that you're, you're heading toward. And you're driving towards those mountains. And from a distance, it all looks just like one thing. You can't see from a distance that it's multiple hill after hill after hill. We talked about this as we talked about hermeneutics. In the Old Testament prophecies, they could not see the depth of the prophecies. It was all flattened. And so they didn't see the already not yet nature of the kingdom. But as you're driving and you're in Colorado, as you're coming close to those mountains, you begin to get to the foothills. You begin to get over the foothills and around the foothills. And you begin to see that this thing that looked like just a band, a flat band, An hour ago, now is multiple mountain after mountain after mountain after mountain after mountain. In other words, in the Old Testament, the prophecies look like this. But as we see in the New Testament and they're turned, we see that there is depth to these prophecies. And so in the New Testament um, proclamation of the kingdom, Jesus is trying to help. In this chapter in particular, he wants them to see the already not yet nature of the kingdom. I think this was John the Baptist's problem. Remember John the Baptist? Okay, when he comes, he's a forerunner of Jesus, right? He comes. Well, who is John the Baptist? He is the last one in the line of Old Testament prophets, right? We talked about that a few weeks ago. John the Baptist is the last prophet in the line of Old Testament prophets. So John the Baptist comes and he says things like this. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear the threshing floor and gather wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Listen to the terms that John the Baptist is using. He's talking about harvest. All the Jews understood that the image of harvest meant the end of the age. When there be judgment, vindication of the righteous, judgment upon the wicked. And John the Baptist is saying that time is here. It's come. And he was right. Because Jesus was on the scene. But John the Baptist didn't have the proper depth perception. You see, because just a little bit later, as you'll remember from a few weeks ago in Matthew 11, John's patience began to wear thin. He hears Jesus talking about the kingdom. The kingdom is at hand, the kingdom is upon us. And he's wondering where is the axe? Where is the fire? Where is the winnowing fork? Where is the judgment? Where is the harvest? And so as I said a few weeks ago, Matthew, in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus corrects John by by sending his disciples back to him and and showing him that indeed the kingdom was breaking in. But then Jesus says this in verse 11 of Matthew 11. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And And I gave you three reasons a few weeks back as to why the least of the one in the kingdom of heaven, is greater than John the Baptist. And the first reason I gave you is the one I'm going to repeat today. Jesus isn't talking about moral greatness. I don't think any of us in here can stand up to John the Baptist's morality. We're not as morally upright people as John the Baptist was. So what is he talking about here? He's talking about our greatness. The greatness is the fact we are on this side of the mysteries. John the Baptist was the last of the Old Testament prophets. Now we... In light of the coming of Christ and eventually the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, we have a greater insight into the kingdom than even John the Baptist had. As I said, John the Baptist was one of the Old Testament prophets. 1 Peter 1.10, I think he was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. says this, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So the Old Testament prophets had the prophecies given to them by God, and they're looking at them, and they're inquiring, and they're trying to figure this out, but they can't quite grasp the depth perception. And so, they're longing, they're wanting to figure it out. And so, to the Jews of Jesus' day, they didn't understand. And so, Jesus is trying to help those who have ears to hear to understand in Matthew 13. Those of us who now have come after John, those who have ears to hear, who are in the kingdom, are at an advantage because we've been given more insight into the mysteries that have been made known to us. This is why Jesus said in last week's text, "Do you remember this, Matthew chapter 13, Beginning in verse 16. Blessed are your eyes, for they have seen, and your ears, for they hear. And listen to verse 17. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and hear what you hear and did not hear it. Those in the kingdom, those on this side of the cross are at a tremendous advantage. What a gracious gift we've been given to be able to see what we see and hear what we hear. So, Jesus in Matthew 13, he now begins to unveil the mysteries, unveil the the mysteries of the kingdom. And in doing so, he is correcting some of the Jewish misconceptions regarding the kingdom. Remember, Matthew's gospel, as I said earlier, was written primarily to a Jewish audience. There are five discourses in the book of Matthew, five discourses. And if you understand ancient literature, you know what you find in the middle of the book is the theme of the book. This is the third discourse. This is the middle discourse of the five discourses in Matthew. So this is very important, Matthew 13. This is the theme, if you will, of the book of Matthew, is to help the Jews understand the kingdom of God. Let us also see, though, that in Matthew 13, Jesus is not just fixing ancient Jewish misconceptions about the kingdom. He's also fixing our modern American misconceptions about the kingdom. Now, before we jump into this next parable... And I'm only doing the parable of the weeds today. I want us to get the flow of Matthew 13, okay? There are eight parables. Last week I said there were seven. I was wrong. There were eight. I meant to say eight. Uh, Number one, there's the parable of the sower or the soils, which is what we looked at last week. Number two, there's the parable of the weeds that we're looking at this week. Number three, there's the parable of the mustard seed. Number four, there is the parable of the leaven. And you can look at your Bibles and look at the headings and see this as I'm talking about this. Number five, there is the parable of the hidden treasure. Number six, there is the parable of the pearl of great value. And number seven, there is the parable of the dragnet. And number eight, there is the parable of the new and the old treasures, which is the very end. Only the parable of the soils, the weeds, and the mustard seed, and the leaven are found in the other Gospels. So four of the eight parables are found in the other Gospels. Now we need to see here there is an intentional structure to the way Matthew has put this chapter together. Matthew is a master author. Today we need to see there's a chiastic structure to these parables. Now, do you guys remember what I've talked about in the past regarding a chiasm? Okay, there are eight parables. That means the first one corresponds with the last one. The second one corresponds with the second to last one, or the seventh one. The third one, the fourth, fifth, sixth, and so on. So you've got this structure where they relate to one another. And that's a, that's a very common ancient practice in literature. And that's the structure here. First of all, the parable of the soils, which we looked at last week, relates to the parable of the old and new treasures, which we're going to look at eventually. Okay, those connect to one another. And both of those have to deal with how the kingdom is announced, how it is proclaimed. Secondly, coming on down the structure here, you have the parable of the weeds, today's parable. It corresponds with the parable of the dragnet. If you look later on, you see the parable of the dragnet. It's the same thing being communicated. And that is how the kingdom is coming. So not only how is it announced, but how is it coming? And then finally, there are two sets of twin parables that correspond with each other. There are the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven, which are telling us the same thing. And those correspond with the next ones, which is the parable of the hidden treasure and the pearl of great value, which are also telling us the same thing. And both of those two treasures have to deal with the hidden and modest nature of the kingdom. Hidden yet very valuable. And since those two parables are at the center of the chiasm, that's sort of the focus of the text. So many of the Jews were missing the kingdom. They were missing what was hidden. They were not seeing it. They were not grasping on to the treasure. So that's sort of a structure. There's a lot of other really cool things in the text structurally. There are two uh, prophecies that are mentioned that they were fulfilled. There are two explanations, and we'll get into some of that later. But for this morning, just that chiasm is needed because I want us to see three things. That Matthew 13 addresses these three things. The mystery of the proclamation of the kingdom. That's the first thing it addresses. Then it addresses the mystery of the coming of the kingdom. So those are your first two blanks there. The announcement of the kingdom or the proclamation of the kingdom, and then the coming of the kingdom, and then finally, the mystery of the nature of the kingdom. How was this kingdom being announced? How is it coming? And, And what's the nature of it? What's it like? These are the three main areas of confusion in the Jewish mind. So today, let us consider the parable of the weeds. What I'm going to do is jump back and forth between the parable itself and the private explanation. ...that Jesus gives the disciples. So here's the first thing the parable of the weeds is teaching us. That the mystery, the mystery of the kingdom's coming... ...is that the Son of Man has inconspicuously inaugurated his kingdom... ...during this present age. The mystery of the kingdom's coming is that the Son of Man... ...has inconspicuously, quietly, modestly inaugurated his kingdom... ...during the present age... Jesus wanted the Jewish people to see the two-stage coming of the kingdom. And stage one isn't harvest. Stage one is sowing. The end of the age, as I've already mentioned, is understood in the Jewish mind to be an age of harvest. Joel chapter 3 verse 13 says this, Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. So we, we see multiple places in the Old Testament where there's this image of harvest, where there's judgment, a great time of judgment. The day of the Lord when the righteous, again, would be vindicated, but the wicked would be punished. The Jews were expecting the harvest. And they were expecting it to come with a bang. But they should have known if there's a harvest, there has to also be a season of what? Sowing. In order to have harvest, you have to have seeds planted. You have to have a period of Sowing. And so Jesus drives that home in today's parable, verse 24. He put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. Now we need to be really careful here not to to make Jesus' metaphors mean the same thing across the board. So Jesus' use of the seed here is different than the way he used seed in the previous parable. There it was the word of the kingdom. But here it actually means something very different. It actually means the sons of the kingdom. So let's look at Jesus' explanation. Verse 37, he, sa- he answered, The one who sows the seed is the Son of Man. I want to focus right there real quick on the, the title, Son of Man. This was Jesus' favorite descriptor of himself, Son of Man. It's from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. And if you know Daniel chapter 7, you know that it's all about the kingdom. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 says this. Actually, it's from verse, um, it is from verse 13, but I'm going to read through verse 14 as well. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So in using this title, Son of Man... He is taking the Jewish minds that are listening to him back to Daniel chapter 7. And he is indeed confirming, I am that man. I am that son of man who is going to bring in that glorious harvest. Jesus is declaring that he will indeed bring in the kingdom. But before Daniel 7 could be fully realized, the son of man had to now sow seed. Jesus isn't telling the Jews that that great harvest time isn't going to happen. He's just telling them it's not going to happen yet. Not yet. The already form of the kingdom, the realized form of the kingdom, was quiet, inconspicuous, like seed being spread on fertile soil. Now, when I was in college, I had a job for three years in a row working for the High Point, North Carolina school system. And um, my job was to work with the flower crew. All right? I know it doesn't sound really cool, but that's what I did. We worked. We went and made sure flowers were planted at all the schools during the summer season so that when the kids came back in the fall, they had pretty schools to return to. And so I think about this, this idea of sowing the seed. At the beginning of the year, what we would do is break up the soil. we sit there and break up at the beginning of the summer. We'd break up the soil. We'd water it. We'd break it up. We'd even put certain fertilizers on it to get the soil ready. Then we'd come back. A few weeks later, then we'd plant the seed in that soil, and then we'd come back periodically, make sure it was being watered, make sure it was getting all that it needed. But we never saw the fruit of our efforts until the very end of the summer. It was at the end of the summer we began to see the pretty flowers popping up. And so if you're impatient, if you come and you're thinking you want to see the fruit, you want to see the excitement of this job of being a flower guy for the High Point North Carolina school system, you were going to be in for a disappointment in June. You had to wait to August. And so here, many of the Jews are disappointed because Jesus isn't coming the way they were expecting. They were expecting the explosion of August and they're sitting in July. So the kingdom was present if the Jews only had ears to hear. There were other things that had to be dealt with first. There was a worse enemy that had to be dealt with first so that the kingdom that was to come could actually be greater than they ever imagined a kingdom that wasn't just a military or political kingdom, but a kingdom that is a heavenly kingdom. Now, this parable seed, as I said earlier, isn't the word as it is in the previous chapter. It's referring to the sons of the kingdom. But what we have here is that God is planting sons of the kingdom, and certainly it is the word that God uses to make people into sons of the kingdom, as Romans 10, 17 says. So faith comes from hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. So last week, we talked about this hearing. Hearing comes through the word of Christ. Notice who the sower is here. It says, the son of man is the one who sowed the seed. So Jesus is the one who does the sowing. Jesus is the one that plants his word in hearts. He plants his word, causes people to be born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Jesus is the one that does that, and he plants his people in the world. His people are the seed in this story. The field is the world, verse 38, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. Now notice where the sons of the kingdom are being planted. The field is what? The world. The world. Notice back in 20 verse 24 who's verse 24 who who does the field belong to? It belongs to the sower. It belongs to the son of man. It's the son of man's field. So not only is Jesus in this story the sower, he's also the landowner and as we'll see later on, he's also the chief reaper. So the, he is the centerpiece of the story. So as he's He owns this world, it belongs to him, and he's seeding it with kingdom citizens, sons of the kingdom. Jesus is saying that as he comes and he exercises his authority, his lordship over this world, this field, he is populating it with people from the kingdom. And he's not just populating part of the world, but the whole world. I think there is a foreshadowing here of the great commission in this parable. Matthew 28, 18. Jesus came and said to them, All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. It's my world. It's my field. Go therefore and make disciples. Seeds of wheat. Go make disciples. Of all nations. The whole world. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. To the harvest. So the image is that believers, sons of the kingdom, are sprouting across the globe... And so the kingdom is being inaugurated here as disciples continue to be made. Even today, in our day, the sowing is still happening as disciples continue to be made. But the Jews were not expecting this. They had expected a limited kingdom to the ethnic people of Israel. They had correlated it to a military victory. But Jesus was showing them that the kingdom was going to be a global, multi-ethnic, spiritual, of spiritual nature as the kingdom broke into the world. The kingdom had come. But it was coming quietly, it was coming inconspicuously. As Jesus said in Luke, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. So too the harvest would eventually come, but it would come only after the sowing. And this leads me to the next mystery concerning the coming of the kingdom. The mystery of the kingdom's coming is that the Son of Man is patiently sustaining his kingdom as it coexists with the evil of the present age. The harvest meant that evil was to be vanquished, but Jesus says not yet. Verse 25, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed seeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up, it bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. Now the weeds here, the Greek word um, for weeds is zizanion, which is darnel. If you know what darnel is, it's a poisonous plant that looks almost identical to wheat. It looks almost identical. Now because the word in Greek, zizanion, if I'm saying that right, zizanion, it sounds like a Hebrew word... For sexual immorality. Therefore, oftentimes these, these, these weeds were oftentimes called illegitimate wheat. Although they used a much cruder word than illegitimate. Okay? It was illegitimate wheat. And that's what we see in the world. Illegitimate sons. Satan is trying to, to do a counterfeit. He wants his seed to spread throughout the world. The seed of the serpent. It's a counterfeit kingdom. But those who are sons of the kingdom belong to the true kingdom. Verse 40, 39. It says, the enemy who sowed them is the devil. Satan is always trying to destroy God's kingdom work by sowing evil seed in the world. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the God of this world. And that does not mean that Satan rules the world over Christ. The God of this world has blinded the minds of un- the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Satan has from the very beginning tried to destroy the kingdom. He rages like a roaring lion against God's elect. But those who are his children likewise hate the kingdom. So the parable is very clear. The good seed, the wheat are the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And this is simply continuing the very consistent teaching of the Bible. There are only two ways to live. There are only two families. There are only two tribes. There are only two doors. There are only two paths. There are only two kingdoms. Christopher Hitchens. Y'all know who Christopher Hitchens is? The atheist, well-known atheist. Um, at least he's an honest atheist. Sometimes you run into those who claim to be atheists, and they will say, well, you know what? I admire and I respect Jesus because he was a good teacher and all, but I really don't believe in God or anything. But Christopher Hitchens, he's, he's an honest atheist. He says this. He says, I don't like Jesus at all. He says, I don't like Jesus because he discriminates. Every time he speaks, he divides humanity in two. Christopher Hitchens actually read the Bible. Most atheists haven't. He's right. Jesus is always discriminating. He's always dividing humanity into two tribes, two people, two paths, two gates. So the world is filled with two types of people, those from the kingdom of the sun and those from the kingdom of Satan. Now, it's important to notice that this parable is about two different types of people in what? In the world. The field is the what? World. Let me just ask real quickly here, how have you heard this passage preached before the wheat and the tares? about the wheat and the tares? in what? In the world or in the church? Most of the time this sermon is preached. It's preached in a revival- type setting. but there's the wheat and the tares in the church. And if you're a tare, you need to return turn to Christ, believe in him, and if you're wheat. Don't be too hard on the tares. You may hurt the church in the process. That's a horrible misrepresentation of this text. The text is talking about the world, not the church. And there's a couple of things. D.A. Carson put it this way. He says this parable is about eschatological expectation, not ecclesiological deterioration. Now, I don't want to linger here, but I want to say that that type of preaching, that viewing this, the, the, the field as the church and not the world can lead to two problems. Number one... Poor church discipline. Because as we read this text here, it says, don't try to pull up the weeds. Don't, don't try to pull up the weeds. And so if you, if you think that this is referring to the church, you're going to say, well, we shouldn't practice church discipline then. Secondly, and hopefully not to offend anybody here, but I think another way this passage, I've seen it applied to the church incorrectly, is people trying to justify pato baptist covenantalism. What I mean by that is that they say the New Covenant community is a mixed community of believers and unbelievers. This passage does not give us warrant to baptize babies, and just in case they end up being weeds instead of wheat, oh well. This is not justification for that. We do take believers' baptism seriously because we believe the New Covenant is radically new, and it consists only of saved individuals. We don't openly create a means for non-regenerate children to be called covenant members and assume that some of them hopefully are wheat. That is absolute foolishness. Now we do try to make sure, hopefully, that people are saved before they're baptized. Some Baptists just practice infant baptism just a few years later. In other words, if we can get a child to repeat a prayer, we'll get them wet and count them on our roll. That's just as bad as Pado Baptist covenantalism. So, when we come here, we want to make sure that people are wheat before they're baptized. We believe in church discipline, friends, because we know that despite our best efforts to only grant membership to regenerate professing believers, we can't see the heart, and sometimes people do come in who are not true believers. Therefore, Matthew eighteen seventeen. 1 Corinthians 5 5, 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 and following, 1 Timothy 1.20, teach us to put them out. Put them out. So we don't treat them like wheat if they're really weeds. So do you see if we if we understand the field as being the church and not the world, we end up messing up a lot of things. In essence, church discipline is the reverse of Colossians 1 13. Colossians 13 says that we've been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. Church discipline is delivering someone over to Satan because they show no evidence of belonging to the kingdom of the son. So we do judge in the church, but this parable is speaking of the world as the field. So in, so in, in the case of the world, we do not exercise that type of weeding out. 1 Corinthians 5, the whole chapter is about church discipline, and it says that. 1 Corinthians 5.12, For what... Have I to do with judging outsiders? Is is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. And that lines up perfectly here with this text. Because that's the very next thing we see in the parable. Verse 27. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, then do you want us to go out and gather them? But he said, no. Lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. The Son of Man tells us that this is not the age of judgment. This is not the age of the sword. What was the Lord Jesus' attitude toward weeds? How did he treat sinners? With meekness and love, kindness, charity, patience. Christians do not use the power, do not use power or the sword or politics or the state to pursue purity in the world. That is not our means for doing that. We don't push our faith on others through enforcement of laws, nor do we punish the faithless. History teaches us that we end up hurting the church if we get into that. That is the job of the state. That God has given to the state. So he says in verse 29. Lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. The weeds and the wheat. Their roots would, would intertangle. It made no agricultural sense to go and start yanking up all those weeds. Because you'd end up harming the wheat. You had to wait until the harvest. This does not mean we do not stand up for the truth of God's word. But as 2 Corinthians 10.4 teaches us. Our weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but have divine power to destroy strongholds and as Ephesians 6:12 teaches us we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against, but against the rulers against the authorities against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So in this stage we patiently stand as the son of man patiently sustains. He is the one praying for us as we live in the world but refuse to be of the world. John 17, 14, the high priestly prayer of Jesus. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but did you keep them from the evil one? I do not ask that you take them out of the world. So during the era of sowing, we wait patiently. And why do we wait patiently? Why does Jesus wait patiently? Well, first, we wait patiently because whatever we endure while we wait for the harvest is for our good. James 1 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. But secondly, God's patience is meant to bring more to repentance. Second Peter three: nine. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's patience is designed to turn weeds into wheat. But the harvest is coming. And so the last thing I want us to see, the mystery of the kingdom's coming, is that the Son of Man will triumphantly consummate his kingdom at the conclusion of this present age. So you see the, the first point was that the mystery of the kingdom is coming was that the Son of Man has inaugurated. The second point was that the Son of Man is patiently sustaining. And finally, this one's future, the Son of Man will triumphantly consummate his kingdom. Verse 30, let both grow together until the harvest, and at the harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Verse 39 tells us that the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are his angels. The harvest is coming, friends. Jesus leaves no doubt. He tells us that the end is coming, and God is in control. Everybody has an eschatology, even unbelievers, right? Everybody has an eschatology. Any of y'all watch Interstellar? That is an eschatological movie. Talks about the end of the world. Um, or um, 20, what was it, 2012, 2014, the disaster movie where the whole world was supposed to end by 20-something. Remember that one? Giant floods and people get on these big boats. And Everyone has an eschatology. Everyone knows in their heart that this world will not last. Jesus only gives us the only right eschatology. The harvest is at the end of the age. The Bible is so clear here in other places. This is what's part of what's rocking my world. The Bible is so clear here and in other places that there are only two ages. This age, which began at creation and which is coming to an end, because we are in the end times and there is the age to come. All of time is encompassed in those two ages. From time, when time began to all of eternity. Eternity for those who are the sons of Satan will be hell. Verse 40 Just as the weeds were gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. Verse 41 So the Son of Man will send his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers and will throw them into the fiery furnace in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Notice something. At the beginning of the parable, it says the field was the world. At the end of the age, the field is the kingdom. The new heavens and the new earth, this world is, belongs to the Son of Man. He is going to remake it. He is going to fix it. And this is where the kingdom will happen in time and space, in a new heavens and a new earth. And out of that, he will gather all causes of sin and lawlessness. Sin here, scandalon, is the word, literally means stumbling block. It's where we get our word scandal from. It refers to one who causes others to, to fall or hinders the faith of others. Matthew 16, 23, in that passage, Peter is called a stumbling block. You're a hindrance to me. Get behind me, Satan. In Matthew 18, 6, Jesus warns that we should not be scandalized. We should not be stumbling blocks to those to little children who want to know about the kingdom. But perhaps even more interesting is that this image of the stumbling stone was given, for, given in regards to the Jews who failed to see the true nature of the kingdom. Romans 9, verse 32 says they have stumbled... Scandalon over the stumbling stone and it is written behold I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling a rock of offense and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame this is Paul referring to the Jewish people they had stumbled they missed the image of the, they missed the, what the kingdom was all about back in Matthew 11 when Jesus was trying to help John the Baptist and his disciples see the kingdom he said this in verse 6 blessed is the one who is not offended by me and literally translated Blessed is the one who does not stumble over me. That word offended is on. Blessed is the one who doesn't stumble over the Messiah. Jesus is the one who interprets the kingdom for us. He is the one that tells us how it's coming, when it's coming, why it's coming, what, it's, what it consists of. And so many people in Jesus' day missed the kingdom. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. But I'm afraid that in our day and age as well, we define the kingdom in our terms. We want it to be a political reality. We want it to fit into our eschatological system. We have a system that we like and we want it to fit there. Instead of saying, Jesus, let you be the one who determines what the system is. Jesus, blow my system of end times out of the water so that it will be consistent with what your word has to stay. Don't let me stumble. Don't let me stumble. For those who do not stumble but have ears to hear the message of the kingdom, we read this glorious thing, glorious truth in verse 43. The righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of the Father. And this again is an allusion to Daniel chapter 12, verse 3, which is a prophecy about the kingdom. So he who has ears, let him hear. So let me conclude this morning. Let me Conclude with a clear call. If you do not embrace the Son, you will not be in heaven. Matthew speaks of this great separation that will happen on the day of judgment. Okay, and here we read of the separating between the wheat and the tares. In verse 31 of chapter 24, he talks about his angels going out as a loud trumpet and gathering his elect from the four winds. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, the Son of Man comes in his glory with all the angels with him, and he will sit on his glorious throne, and before him, will be gathered, all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. That is a day of separation, and it is coming. So believers, let us be patient in the world. Don't take judgment into your own hands. Be patient with the lost. Stand for the truth, but do so with compassion, with grace, with charity. Remember that our Lord is patient with us. Recognize, Christians, that there is an already not yet scheme to God's kingdom. Go to Matthew 13. Let, let Jesus give you a tour of under, underground Disney, if you will. Don't have an over-realized eschatology with rose-colored glasses that thinks that through the gospel, the world is going to eventually become Christianized. That we're going to overcome the world's systems by simply evangelizing enough, obeying the law enough, influencing the world's systems enough exercising social justice enough that we can somehow usher in the kingdom. We can't usher in the kingdom. It has to be supernaturally ushered in by the Son of Man at the end of the age. But at the same time, don't have an overly pessimistic, under-realized eschatology. That is anxious over the condition of the world. That's fearful all the time. That fears that the church will one day die. I hate it when people say, well, the church is just one generation away from extinction. The church will never go extinct. The wheat will always be there until the harvest. The church will never go extinct. The weeds will not overtake the wheat. So don't have an overly pessimistic, under-realized eschatology. The wheat will continue to grow. Now, here in America, it may seem like the weeds are taking over, but I guarantee you the gospel is exploding across this planet. Wheat are popping up everywhere across the globe. And so we should praise God for that. Yes, our world will continue to be filled with evil and with evil men, weeds meant to do harm to the wheat, but the wheat will keep on growing and the Son of Man is still sowing. And the wheat and the weeds will coexist until the end, till the day of harvest, when the righteous are vindicated and the wicked are indeed destroyed. An unbeliever this morning, I pray to God that you will have ears to hear, that you will hear the truth, that the Son of Man is the sower, is also the owner of the world, and he's also the chief harvester, he is the reaper. Come to him now while the season of sowing is still active. Trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins. For the seeds are sown by his death. John twelve twenty three. This beautiful passage. Jesus said to them, The hour is coming for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. That's Christ. He came and he died. And he's bearing fruit across the globe. He died for sinners to save sinners from the wrath of God, from the harvest that is to come. But you must turn from your sin and put your faith in him alone. And I pray that you will do that this morning. Let's pray. Father, praise your holy name for your holy word. Lord, I thank you that you have actually upset some of my preconceived notions about the kingdom this week as I studied. I thank you because I know how hard-hearted I can be. I know that I have pockets where I like certain systems. They fit For me. But God, don't let me, don't let me make my system superior to your word. And I pray that for all of us in here. And as we continue to think about the kingdom and more insights into the kingdom, Lord, I pray that you would just blow up any false conceptions we have about the kingdom, just as you were doing for many who heard you on that day when these parables were first given. There were many who heard and believed, but there were also so many who did not believe, who could not hear. So God, I pray that you give all of us ears to hear this morning. And Lord, I know, I know without a doubt in a room this size, that there's probably some some weeds in here. The weed and the wheat, Lord, as you taught us in your word, as you chose the the word, you chose to describe the, the weeds It was this plant that was so similar to the wheat. Oh God, I pray that no one in this room would be fooled by doing things that are similar to the sons of the kingdom. Coming to the church and singing songs may look like Christianity. Sitting through a very long sermon may feel like Christianity. Dropping a few bucks to help out a kid in Rwanda may seem like Christianity. Father, I ask that you would look into the hearts of every single person in this room and expose those hearts so that there be any weeds in here that are not wheat, that they may feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, they may experience godly grief that leads to repentance and not worldly grief that will simply lead them to death. So God, I ask that and pray now that you be with us as we sing this final song. Oh, Jesus, we need you. We need you to sustain us in this world. We need you every hour. We pray in your name. Amen.